0: You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer powered, listener supported. Community Radio from South Central Indiana.
1: Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young.
2: And I'm Lucinda Lonek. This is the WFHB Local News 4, Thursday, March 17th, 2022.
1: Later in the program, we have Prescription for Healthcare, a monthly podcast collaboration with Medicare for All Indiana. Today, we welcome guest Michael Lighty, president of Healthy California Now, and a consultant with the National Union of Healthcare Workers. More in the bottom half of tonight's program.
2: Also coming up in the next half hour, 24 residents in two of Bloomington's proposed annexation areas filed a lawsuit on Wednesday to appeal annexation in areas 1A and 1B. More in the top half of tonight's show, but first, your local headlines.
1: On March 10th, at the Bloomington Historic Preservation Committee meeting, the committee approved a petition to add on to their house... In the mcdole gardens historic district program manager gloria colom presented on behalf of the petitioners bear clapper and springpoint architects
3: the petitioner and the owners are requesting for an addition to the um the house and this house in McDowell gardens this is part of a long-term chain of projects that started with a, a garage, and then with working the front facade, and now the final phase. I believe this is the final phase. You can correct me. Um, is the addition of um, of a room to the side? Um, as staff, I originally had some concerns regarding the shape and the geometry of the building. However, um, meeting with the petitioner and the owners and seeing just how far back this addition would be. Um, and the fact that the McDowell Gardens Neighborhood Association supports this project and that the house is actually absolutely tiny. I've, I actually went and did a site visit and um, half the house is basically the bedroom right now. So um, the. The addition is actually barely visible from the street because this house is on a hill. Um, This area of Morton Street, the houses are, I would say about between eight and 10 feet above the ground. Um, So it's quite leveled up and then it's very, um, it's towards the back and the architecture for the, the new area, the design and the exterior are compatible with the house.
1: Commission member Sam DeSolar shared that he appreciated seeing this house again and how they have worked to establish the new additions while keeping the historic designation of the house.
4: It's, it's been fun to watch the accretional growth of this structure at an exponential rate. It's like watching a, you know, one of those uh, fast motion films. But um, I think the petitioner has done... A nice job articulating the new versus the old and uh, letting the main house still maintain uh, its, uh, I guess, primacy over both the garage and the, uh, uh, the addition. And it's almost becoming a, a small compound at this point. Uh, so I, I really, uh, this one's fun. Thank you.
1: The board approved the addition unanimously. The next meeting is scheduled for March 24th.
2: On March 8th, the Monroe County Public Library Board of Trustees held a special session to hear from the Associate Director Greer Carson, the candidate for the director's position. He presented on how he would fulfill the role of director following the retirement of Marilyn Wood. He was asked what some of the greatest opportunities are for the Monroe County Public Library. Carson said that technology has changed the way we communicate and get information. He said that the library should not only offer online platforms, but experiences.
5: Though worthy of the reverence we share for its magic and its history, the book is no longer at the centre of our world. The charge of a 21st century library is to further understand this shift, and more importantly, how it informs our community's needs and how we can continue to embrace the many opportunities for diversifying the collections and resources that we provide. We are also charged with helping our community understand and embrace this shift. Like many of our peer libraries, we've invested in this change by incorporating not only new formats, both physical and digital, but also new resources that are less about consumption of content and more about experiences and use. I like to ask questions, and this one begs the big one. What will a public library look like in the future? No one has a definitive answer, and I won't presume to offer one here. Nor is there likely to be a single answer, as each public library should reflect its own community's unique needs. But it's a question we should frequently ask ourselves, and it's an appropriate one for an age of disruption.
2: The board will have their regular scheduled meeting on March 23rd.
1: 24 residents in two of Bloomington's proposed annexation areas filed a lawsuit on Wednesday to appeal annexation in areas 1A and 1B. According to the complaint filed with the Monroe County Circuit Court, county residents also petitioned for declaratory judgment and for damages. In a phone interview with WFHB News yesterday, Margaret Clements, president of the Monroe County Residents Against Annexation, discussed how county residents are preparing for the battle in the courts.
0: Well, they have hired a great attorney who will represent them in the courts. And today, a lawsuit is being filed appealing the annexation and requesting a declaratory judgment against the city of Bloomington and the mayor of Uh, Bloomington and the Common Council of the City of Bloomington in order to void the annexation.
1: Late last month, Monroe County Auditor Catherine Smith announced the final tally of remonstrance waivers. Five of the seven proposed annexation areas reached the 65% threshold required to void annexation. Areas 1A and 1B did not reach the 65% threshold needed to cancel out the annexation, but they did receive over 51%, which is enough to appeal annexation in court. Over the past year, Clements went door-to-door, rallying county residents to file remonstration waivers and avoid annexation. Clements talked about the grassroots effort she undertook on behalf of the MCRAA.
0: There were so many rules and procedures that somebody needed to own property, that they must be the person on the deed, that they must not have a waiver on the property. And then they had to file a notarized statement that said that they were remonstrating against the ordinance and against annexation. And it was a really complicated process. And it was in a pandemic. And so what we did beginning in May is we understood that this would be complicated. So we embarked on a public education campaign that taught people about what their rights were. And we uh, also collected signatures on trial petitions uh, so that we could try to convince the Bloomington City Council that 65% of the residents or more would remonstrate and void the annexation and that it was in everyone's best interest to just not pass the ordinance. Well, our petitions, although we did achieve more than 65% across the areas, were not convincing to the city council, and so they passed the ordinances anyway, and when the auditor began her 90-day official remonstration period, we were well prepared to go out and knock on those doors once again and get the signatures of the property owners who did not want to be annexed. And that's we had volunteers across the annexation effort areas. We had just a wonderful team of people who helped throughout the entire process secure the signatures that would help represent what the people wanted.
1: Defendants in the legal action include the City of Bloomington, Mayor John Hamilton, County Auditor Catherine Smith, and the Bloomington City Council. Plaintiffs include the Monroe County residents against annexation, along with about two dozen property owners. The plaintiffs are represented by the law firm Bunger & Robertson. Clements outlined what's next for the county residents against annexation.
0: Well, we are prepared, no matter what follows this action, to continue to represent the will of the residents in each of the annexation areas. We hope that uh, this doesn't become a long protracted legal battle, but if it does, you know, we're uh, girding our loins, so to speak.
1: To listen to the full interview with Margaret Clemens, visit wfhb.org following this broadcast.
2: Now it's time for Prescription for Healthcare, a monthly podcast collaboration with Medicare for all Indiana. Today, hosts Dr. Rob Stone and Karen Greenstone welcome guest Michael Lightley, president of Healthy California Now and consultant with National Union of Healthcare Workers. We turn to our hosts for more.
6: From Bloomington, Indiana, welcome to Prescription for Healthcare on WFHB Community Radio, sponsored by Medicare for All Indiana. I'm Karen Greenstone, along with Dr. Rob Stone. Hello. Our guest, Michael Lighty, is president of Healthy California Now and a consultant with the National Union of Healthcare Workers. He is a founding fellow of the Sanders Institute and worked for 25 years at California Nurses Association, NNU. Michael Lighty, welcome to Prescription for Healthcare. Thank you so much, Karen
7: and Rob, great to be here.
6: Michael, many of our listening audience do not know about the history of organizing single-payer healthcare in California. Can you give us a brief history?
7: Certainly, the really started this current period goes back to 1994, when shortly after passage of a state Senate bill that would have established single-payer, which then stalled, advocates put on the ballot what was known as Prop 186, which was an ambitious single-payer initiative, which we thought would be in the context of a successful Clinton plan and take the next step. So, okay, we did federal reform, a start, very inadequate in some respects. Let's show California, let's show the nation that California can be the model for what really it takes to Guarantee healthcare to everybody. So that proposition 186 did very badly at the polls, in part because, of course, the Clinton plan failed, and also because the industry brought out the big guns and really um, hammered on some of the issues that we still deal with today. But since then, a number of bills have passed the state legislature only to be vetoed by the governor. That occurred in the mid aughts. And in period 2017, 2018, a bill went through the state Senate But due to the governor's opposition and also some of the same players that are still there now, it stalled in the assembly. So this recent bill, AB 1400, picks up where that left off and tried to start in the assembly, did start in the assembly, in order to try to overcome those barriers from the 2017-2018 bill.
6: The sponsor of the current bill in California did not call up the bill saying he did not have the votes, although the governor, Gavin Newsom, did run his campaign supporting a statewide system of financing health care through a single-payer system. What happened? Essentially, some
7: of the same factors that have been a problem all along were in play. But there was also a unique twist to it. Because for the first time, we did have a governor who was, as you said, Karen, ran on the issue, understood the issue, was supportive in concept. And when it came time to the bill itself, he was at best indifferent, but we did have the Speaker of the Assembly in support, and we did have key legislators in support, including the chair of the Assembly Health Committee. So that was on the positive side. The other positive side was an extraordinary grassroots campaign that mobilized in virtually every Assembly district, every legislative district. And... That, that certainly had an impact on the number of legislators that got on board. But at the end of the day, we were probably anywhere from 12 or more votes short of the 41 votes that we needed. So the author faced a choice. Okay, are we going to have a vote that we're going to lose pretty badly, get people on record, or are we going to live to fight another day and try to convert those people who might not be available to us if we took a hard vote? And that was the decision that was made. I think some advocates were disappointed. But the truth is, we didn't have a program that was going to hold them electorally accountable. If we had said, okay, anyone who votes against this, we've got a $2 million fund to, you know, take you on in your next primary. OK, that's a real consequence. That's you know, an organizing opportunity. We didn't have that. We didn't have the organizations who the legislators listen to every day on healthcare reform. And as you know, in many of these states, these are organizations that are focused on immediate change, incremental change. We did not get them on board for this comprehensive reform. So the combination of the lack of that kind of organizational support and um, the inability to convinced legislators that their electoral future depended on this vote I think doomed us to a, a, probably a minority of supporters in the Assembly.
4: And and just briefly for our Hoosier audience, d- describe how the Democrats actually do control the House and the Assembly and the Senate in California.
7: Control, yes. I know this is quite an amazing thing. When the body is fully fully present, 60 out of the 80 Assembly members are Democrats. That's above, of course, a two-thirds majority. So theoretically, they can literally do anything. Similarly, in the Senate, it's I think it's 31 to 9 out of 40. So these are huge majorities. Part of the problem we had with this single-payer bill was that there are five members of the Assembly who had retired or gone on to other things, most of whom were supporters of the bill. So that put us in a tougher spot to begin with. But this is the reality politically. Unless Democrats champion this issue which they have not done since 1992 and the Clinton plan, it's going to be very tough to win this legislatively. And so we have to convince them that this is politically necessary to do whether they want to or not. Mm-hmm. And it's—and it does, as you suggest, Karen, start with the California governor. Clearly he knows the policy, he's inclined to do it, but so far he hasn't um, believed it's politically necessary
4: and that we have to change. Uh-huh. In October, just this last fall, you posted on the Healthy California Now blog a piece titled, Failure Should Not Be an Option. And it starts out, you wrote, what are we to think about policymakers who cannot avoid seeing the signs of a failing healthcare system and yet do nothing to address the failure? Evidence is piling up that commercial insurance harms patients, if do no harm is the first principle of medicine, what legitimate role do these insurance companies have?
6: So my question based on that is, besides the usual suspects, big insurance, big pharma, hospital associations, who benefits from the current system? Because it's clearly not the residents of California, the patients who would benefit.
7: Wall Street. Healthcare is a huge investment growth sector for Wall Street. They're buying up doctor's practices. They're buying up hospital systems. They're buying up nursing homes. They have pharmaceutical companies are the darlings of Wall Street because they provide such huge dividends. Rob, you know, the whole interconnections between the insurance companies and corporate America. These companies in the industrial sector or service sector invest in the insurance companies because they are so successful as instruments for shareholder growth and value. You have to start ultimately with the role that the healthcare sector plays in the economy. And that role benefits executives, it benefits shareholders, and obviously it it benefits um, companies that you don't even associate with healthcare. So that is fundamentally the problem. This is the biggest political spending sector in the economy. They spend more lobbying and on political contributions than any other sector. The other people who benefit is why can't they see the failure of the system? I think there's an Upton Sinclair quote about that. When someone's income depends upon them not knowing, they tend not to know, Uh, paraphrase him. And I think that's what's going on here. These are the entities that fund their campaigns, that fund the political parties. Democratic Party has taken huge monies from healthcare companies. The governor has taken huge contributions during his recall from insurance companies and other healthcare companies. And frankly, doctors and certain medical groups benefit hugely from this system. They're equity partners, as we know, and they're also often executives with high salaries. So you just you have to unpack the whole web of financial connections. And the truth is, these corporations are profiting from human suffering. And they are protecting their financial interests at the stake of our care. So,
6: Michael, what is your prescription for health care?
7: There's, there's no shortcut. It's got to be single payer. It's got to be a system that guarantees health care to everyone by eliminating all barriers to care. And that means starting with financial barriers. It means addressing the disparities and inequities that were revealed by COVID that are longstanding. It means an emphasis on primary care and preventive health, because the current system obviously doesn't prioritize either of those. And what it does first and foremost, I think, is put the professional clinical judgment of doctors and other caregivers at the forefront of the decision-making process so that insurance company, bureaucrats, financial interests, and all those structures that are set up to profit go away in the face of providers determining the care that is going to be most effective to treat patients as they see them. That really has got to be at the heart of the healthcare system, and it simply isn't. That We've got to restore a sense of caregiving and solidarity and those values and community and equity and justice. Those are the values that have to animate and underscore the healthcare system. So I think people, we often talk policy, we often talk about the interests at stake. But ultimately, it's a values question. You know, what do we value and how do we incorporate our values so that people get the healthcare they need and deserve? And I think we should be righteously angry at these corporations who are literally uh, making money as we suffer. And that sense of righteous anger is completely appropriate, I'm afraid. And we that's really got to
6: animate our movement. Wonderful. Michael, Michael, You are the best. Um, (laughs) Thank you for joining us on Prescription for Healthcare. I hope the next time we talk with you, you'll be able to tell us your success story.
7: You're here, Karen. Thank you so much. What a treat to be with you today.
6: This is Karen Greenstone and Dr. Rob Stone for Prescription for Healthcare, sponsored by Medicare for All Indiana on WFHB Community Radio. To your good health, everyone.
2: That was Prescription for Healthcare, a monthly podcast collaboration with Medicare for All Indiana, with guest Michael Lightley, President of Healthy California Now and a consultant with National Union of Healthcare Workers. To listen to the full interview and previous episodes of the Prescription for Healthcare, visit WFHB.org.
1: You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by myself and Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Rob Stone and Karen Greenstone.
2: Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and The Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Lucinda Larnock.
1: And I'm Cade Young. A one-on-one conversation with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people. Coming up next on WFHB. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer.